So I'm a bit under the weather today, uh, but it turns out Sunday is a terrible day to call in sick as a lead pastor. <laughs> uh, but scripture says, when we are weak, who is strong? Jesus is. So if in my sickness this sermon is better, praise Jesus. I'm all for it. <laughs> Uh, the message I want to get into today, what I want to talk through is part of love Jesus and others. It's what I believe to be an opportunity for us to be part of the next great awakening of the American church. Uh, and that's why this message matters much to me. Um, and I, I, I really do, I mean, I, I say it, but my, my heart is, oh Jesus, if you can work greatly, do it. Get me out of the way and, and do your thing. Um, before I, I get into how I get a sense of what God is wanting to do, uh, I want to give a little bit of history on what we've seen uh, in our nation as it relates to an awakening of the church and an awakening of a, a desire for God. Because as you look across church history in America, you will find several examples of when God in his sovereignty decided to bring about an environment where people were awakened for their need of him. First great awakening started in 1734 in Northampton, Massachusetts, where a young Jonathan Edwards was pastor. 300 people made a decision to follow Jesus in six months in a town of only 1,100 people. Isn't that amazing? Six months, 300 out of 1,100. That changes a community. And news of this spread and similar experiences happened in over 100 other towns. A few years later, George Whitfield had opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with almost 80% of America's 900,000 colonists. That's a powerful message going out. The Second Great Awakening occurred in the early 1800s. Charles Finney played an important part in this revival as he saw 500,000 people eventually make a decision to follow Jesus. That's incredible. And then from 1800 to 1840, the evangelical Christian population grew from 350,000 to 3 million believers. 40 years. That's some serious growth. In 1857, the North Dutch Church in New York City hired Jeremiah Lanfier to serve as a lay missionary. Not knowing how to reach the businessmen of New York, Jeremiah simply opened the church at noon so they could pray. Businessmen started to show up. Other churches opened their doors for the same purpose. And in one year's time, one year's time, people came to faith through this great prayer meeting revival. That's awesome. And then almost 50 years later, 1906, William Seymour went to Los Angeles where he started prayer meetings that eventually led to a growing group of people who acquired a Methodist church on Azusa Street where meetings continued for years. The Pentecostal and charismatic movements would eventually come out of those meetings. Billy Graham began his career in 1949, and over the course of his lifetime, he organized nearly 400 events that an estimated 180 million people attended, many of whom made decisions to follow Jesus. The American church experienced a charismatic renewal and a Jesus movement in the late 1960s, early 70s. It saw revivals in the mid-1990s with Promise Keepers, a Brownsville revival, and others. And here we sit in 2019, and I believe the Spirit of God is stirring and wants to see another great awakening again. I do. But here's the thing. I I don't think it will come by way of large-scale events or daily meetings in church buildings. I don't think it will be led by businessmen in their noontime lunch hour in prayer. I don't think it will be through three-hour services. 
I believe the next great awakening will occur as people fulfill the words of Jesus who said, a new command I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. The next great awakening of the church that the church experiences will come by way of the supernatural love that's expressed between believers and love that is expressed to others that causes the world to ask, how can people love like that? And the answer is going to be Jesus and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. If you and I want to be a part of the next great awakening of the American church, we must learn to love others well. And the good news is, we've been told how. But the question is, will we do it? Because I'll tell you, the way love is defined in the New Testament, the type of love that Jesus expects, it's not easy. But for us to become the church that Jesus wants us to be, we must learn to love as he loves And the message I will share today walks us through and how we can do that. So if you have your Bibles, hey, I hope you've got God's word with you today. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be underneath the chair in front of you. We encourage you to grab a hold of God's word. Uh, We like to read that together. We're going to be in John chapter 13 today, New Testament book of John. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John chapter 13, verses uh, 34 and 35. I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. We stand simply to highlight that these are God's words to us. They are truth. And Lord, we're asking that you help us fulfill them. So John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Here's what Jesus is saying to the disciples. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. These are the very words of God. You may be seated this morning. Our desire at Connection Point Church, if you've been here for any length of time, is we want to ignite passion for Jesus by creating a culture where people belong in community, believe in Jesus, and become like him in order to bring others in the same. You're probably familiar with that process. This is what we invite people to. We call this the extraordinary life process because Jesus offers this extraordinary life and the question is, will we step into it? And so we encourage people, where you start is you find a place of belonging. And it's hard on a Sunday morning to find a real place of belonging with others. And so we encourage you to do that in connect groups or in volunteer teams. You know, you find belonging as you serve alongside others with our Connection Point kids. You find belonging as you are in a smaller group of about 20 people in a connect group. So we encourage you, find a place of belonging. Then as you do that, we want you to believe deeply in Jesus. We want you to see his words as truth and apply them to your life. And as you begin to do that, you begin to abandon all for him. You seek his empowerment to live the life that he's invited us to live. And then after you are believing in Jesus, we want you to become like him. And so we have mentoring groups where we create this environment to help equip you to become like Jesus so that you can bring others in the same. So how are we equipping people? What kind of qualities do we want to see lived out in others? And so we have these five core values as a church that that what we want to do is help people live these out to abide daily. Talked about that last week. Want you to love Jesus and others. We're talking about that today. We want you to share the good news. We want you to give selflessly and serve others. These are the qualities of what it looks like to live and look like Jesus. 
And if you've been here for the, the time that Shelley and I have been the last three years, we've been communicating this message really for the last three years, just in different ways and, and through different means. But this has been the core of what we've said. And, and where that came from is before Shelley and I came to Connection Point, we were serving overseas. And, and so then in the months leading up to our arrival here, we were visiting with churches every weekend across the U.S. and talking about missions. And so it gave me a lot of time in the car to pray and to ask the Lord, we knew we were coming here, and just said, Jesus, what, what do you want communicated to the people of Connection Point Church? And if you were here in January 2016, I shared a series on live like it matters, which was to say we're to live like Jesus matters. And if we live like Jesus matters, here's what that looks like. We abide daily. We, if you were, I'm going to ask the question, ask in the first service, anybody have the, uh, the t-shirt with the, the handprint on it, list those five core values, some, of the, some people still have those, we have those in our drawers. So that's where that came from. And we listed those five core values, but we changed them a little bit just to clarify communication. So it used to be live the word, and we changed that to love Jesus and others, because Jesus says we fulfill the word by doing that. So that was a little bit simpler, it helped clarify that. And then we used to say share the story of Jesus but we change that to share the good news because we should be good news carriers. We share the good news of Jesus. We change give generously to give selflessly because that's a better definition of New Testament giving. But at the root of it, this is what we've been talking about and we've simply been trying to create environments where people can start to exhibit these qualities and characteristics. In our mentoring groups, we start holding people accountable to these things. That's, that's why they're there. That as we move together as a church, this is what we want to communicate. And as we talk about loving Jesus and others, I really want us to begin to take this message to heart, for I truly believe the Spirit of God will cause another great awakening of the American church, and it will come through those who love well. I want to be a part of that great awakening. I want you to be a part of that great awakening. I think God intends Connection Point to be a part of that great awakening. But the question for us this morning is it will depend upon our ability to love supernaturally. Can we love like that? And so then the question this morning is, well, how do, we, how do we love well? And the good news is, Jesus and a New Testament follower of his, the Apostle Paul, they show us how. And the first way that we love well is that we love well by fulfilling the great commandment. We love well by fulfilling the great commandment. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they would often test him. They asked questions to try to trip him up. And on one of those question-filled days, a lawyer asked Jesus a question. And here's what he asked him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You know, we're so accustomed, if you've been in the church for any length of time, we're used to hearing those two things put together. And in doing so, we can miss out on the, the extraordinary way that Jesus put these things together. That was a revolutionary idea in his day. No one had ever put those things together before Jesus did. Love the Lord your God. It comes from Deuteronomy 6.5. Here's what that verse says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Obviously, that's what Jesus is quoting. And then loving your neighbor as yourself. Where does that come from? It comes from Leviticus 19.18. Where here's what it, it writes. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. I want you to remember that phrase. I'm going to come back to it. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
I am the Lord. See, these two commands are not even in the same book of the Old Testament. So that Jesus would put these two things together is revolutionary. The fact that he would say the entire Old Testament can be summed up in these two commands is extraordinary. And what Jesus is saying here is that love for God is best demonstrated or authenticated in loving others. Reading from Luke chapter 10. Because what Jesus does is he talks a bit about this kind of love in the story of the Good Samaritan. And here's what it says. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what's written in the law? Asking the lawyer this question. How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus responds to the lawyer, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. You see, as we read this story of the Good Samaritan, at this point, Jesus has been teaching this for so long, people understand the teachings of Jesus, they're starting to embrace it as their own, but they still have questions. And so here's what it says here. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, as you read the context of Leviticus chapter 19, what the lawyer is quoting here, it could seem your neighbor is simply another God-fearing Israelite. That's why I said pay attention to that phrase. That's why he's asking, because in Leviticus, it would seem that that's the case. In other words, Jews simply were expected to love other Jews the way that you loved yourself. So the lawyer, wanting to limit the responsibility of his love of others, asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? And what does Jesus do? He shares the story of the Good Samaritan. And as he shares the story, Jesus changes the definition of neighbor. Here's what Jesus says. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers, he said? The one who showed him mercy. The lawyer responding now. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. We don't look at this as revolutionary, but if you go almost anywhere in the world and you say good Samaritan, everyone knows what that is. Why is that? Because this parable was revolutionary in its day and it still is today. Jesus puts together two seemingly disconnected commands and then he redefines who your neighbor is. It's, it's incredible. Jesus, in the story of the Good Samaritan, he showed the crowd that the question to ask is not, who is my neighbor, so as to limit your responsibility, but instead, who am I to be a neighbor to? That's the question we have to ask. And the answer is, everyone. We're to be good neighbors to people of all races, all nations, all socioeconomic and political classes. Jesus says that loving God is best expressed in loving others who are nothing like you and who may not even like you. The Samaritans and the Jews were not in good relationship with each other. And what kind of love is this that Jesus describes? This is supernatural love. 
For us to be a part of the next great awakening, we must learn to love God by loving others well. So how are you doing? Loving your neighbor who has loud parties until 3 (laughs) a.m. How are you doing? Loving your coworker who swears constantly and badmouths others, including yourself, daily. How are you doing there? How are you doing loving people of other races, different nationalities, and socioeconomic classes? Loving God is best expressed by loving others who are nothing like you and who may not even like you. You can love well by fulfilling the great commandment of loving God and loving others. And you can love well by loving others as Jesus has loved you. You can love well by loving others as Jesus has loved you. Jesus, for three years, he was teaching people to love God and love others. This was the ongoing message of Jesus. Love God by loving others who don't like you. Love God by loving others who are not like you. Jesus teaches about this kind of love, and he models this kind of love. Read through the New Testament books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'll see this to be true. And all of this teaching, all of this modeling, was leading up to this point where he's going to establish a new covenant, a new command with brand new terms and conditions of what it looks like to be a child of God. You see, Moses had given the Israelites the law through God, the terms and conditions of the old covenant. And now Jesus is about to give the terms and conditions of the new covenant. The old covenant was a list of 613 laws. The new covenant simplified to one. I don't know about you, but I like simple. Jesus makes it really simple. It's not even two when he breaks this down. Love God and love neighbor. It's not 10. You know, most of us are familiar with 10 commandments. It's not the 613 from the old covenant. It's one. One very important command for all of God's children. We're reading from John chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And if we're not careful this morning, we'll miss the significance of these verses in the statement that Jesus is making. You're probably familiar with these verse, but if you've lumped it in with all the rest, we've missed the significance. When he says a new commandment I give to you, first of all, only God can give new commands. But if you were here the last two weeks, we talked about John chapter 14, where Jesus says, I only speak what the Father wants me to speak. So he's speaking on behalf of the Father here. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And the disciples are thinking, I mean, think about that statement alone, if you stop there, all right, well, that's the golden rule. No worries, you've already talked to us about that one. But now he's about to change the golden rule. It's not love others like you love yourself. No, Jesus is about to ask the disciples to live at a standard that no one has ever been asked to live at before. In fact, it's a standard the disciples won't understand until Jesus goes to the cross. He says, as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love. These are our marching orders as the church. This is the one command that trumps all other commands. If you get this one right, you fulfill all the others. Just focus on one, the rest take care of themselves. And this declaration, it's powerful, it's brilliant, it's life-giving, culture-shaping, family-healing, and it's extraordinary because Jesus is not asking us to love others like we have been shown love. 
He's not asking us to love like we want to be loved by other people. He's telling us to take our cues from him. Jesus is asking that we love others like he has loved us. I want you to think for a moment, too. He's sitting in this room with the disciples. And he could have gone around that room. Matthew, remember the first time we met? You were despised by your community and an embarrassment to your family. But I invited you to follow me anyway. Matthew, extend that same grace to everyone you meet for the rest of your life, as I have loved you. Nathaniel, remember the day we met? Remember what you said about me? Can anything good come from Nazareth? You made fun of my town, my family, my childhood friends. But I invited you anyway. Extend that same grace and forgiveness to everyone that you meet, as I have loved you. Peter, the list is way too long for you, my friend. (laughs) As I have loved you. And for good measure, he could have added, and gentlemen, if you think you've seen me love, tighten your sandals, you haven't seen anything yet. Because the day after Jesus gives this new command, he goes to the cross, and now things are beginning to make sense for the disciples. When Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is what Jesus is talking about. The disciples, they can sit back and reason in that moment when Jesus said, love others like I have loved you. Oh, this is what he meant. And then what does Jesus say? By this, by this kind of supernatural love, all people will know, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the reasons why most American churches are in decline is because we don't love real well as a church. We love okay, but there rarely exists this kind of supernatural love that is meant to exist between those who know Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's hard to find. And the problem is, without it, we're not showing the world who Jesus is. You watch the news and you see a world engaged in culture wars, a world full of frustration and anger, a world full of strained relationships, people at odds with one another. And if we're not careful, we can somehow begin to believe that's okay, maybe even normal. But we need to remember, the world is going to be the world. But what's sad is when the church is not being the church. People will sometimes, pastor, man, my coworker, he's treating me terrible. My first question is, are they a follower of Christ? No. Why do you expect differently? The world is going to be the world. But what's sad is when the church is not being the church. By this, all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So what does that mean for us? It means we start asking ourselves in every situation, What does love require of me? That's the question. I introduced this question last month when we talked about giving. You know, why do we as new covenant believers in Jesus give? We give because others are in need. We give because love requires it. We don't ever give to get. I don't give one so I get 10 back. If you live in America, you've already been given the 10. We forget that sometimes. And this doesn't just apply to giving for us. It applies to every situation that we face in life. 
My brother or sister offended me. What am I supposed to do? Ask yourself the question, what does love require of you? You see, once you start living life through this filter, it becomes extraordinarily clear what it is to live like as a follower of Jesus. And what you'll find is, you usually know the answer to that question. Why? Because you are smart people. You know the answer. But the challenge is, oftentimes it's an answer we don't really want. But what we need to come around to is we need to look at sin a little bit differently. We need to look at it through a New Testament lens. You see, according to this commandment, sin is doing something for ourselves that hurts others. Sin is doing something for ourselves that hurts others. Whenever we put ourselves in front of others to their detriment, we've sinned. Why? Because everyone is made in the image of God. In putting ourselves in front of others, we've hurt someone who God loves just as much as us. Under the new covenant, we are responsible for our behavior and how it impacts the you beside you. Every single time. You see, the selfless love of Jesus requires that we do what's best for others. And let me tell you, it's not easy. But it's what Jesus expects of us. It's how others will know that we are his followers. It's how we get swept up in the next great awakening of the American church. The followers of Jesus who figure this out are the ones who will get to be a part of the next great awakening. I'm sure of it. The believers who figure this out get to be the ones that are a part of the next great awakening of the American church. So the question this morning is, are you loving others like Jesus loves you? Are you displaying love for those who inconvenience your life? Are you expressing love towards siblings who are not treating you well? Are you expressing love toward parents who could have done a better job of parenting while you were in their home? What does love require of you? And I can't give you that answer to your life-specific circumstances. I get that question sometimes. But the good news is this. The Holy Spirit can. When you're unsure, so here's your phrase this morning. I made it rhyme so you can remember it. When you're unsure of what to do, ask the Holy Spirit, what does love require of you? And you'll have the answer. And in so doing, you will fulfill the command of Christ to love others as he loves you. If you figure out the answer to that question, you'll know what God wants and you'll start to love supernaturally. You can love well by loving others as Jesus has loved you. And what does love look like? Paul, a New Testament follower of Jesus, he gives us some instruction. That you can love well by loving like Paul instructs us to. You can love well by loving like Paul instructs us to. Paul, in writing the believers in the ancient city of Corinth, he tells them to love well. He tells them to love well when they're using spiritual gifts. He tells them to love well as followers of Jesus. He gives a description of what love looks like when it's expressed in a godly way. And here's what Paul writes. You might be familiar with it. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So love is patient. You want to know what patience is? Patience is saying, I'll let you set the pace. I'll let you set the pace. 
Do you think your heavenly father sometimes has to let you set the pace? Yeah. Love is kind. You want to know what kindness is? Kindness is loaning someone else your strength rather than reminding them of their weakness. Paul, in another passage, he writes, it is God's kindness that leads you to repentance. Kindness is a powerful thing. And now for somebody here, this could revolutionize your marriage because you're constantly reminding your spouse of their weakness. And after you finish reminding them of their weakness, then you come along and help them out saying, oh, I have to do it again. Oh, I got to replace that toilet paper roll. Oh, got to pick up that dirty laundry. Oh, I got to bring in the mail. Oh, I got to clean up the kitchen. And no, I don't have video cameras in your home. (laughs) Here's what love says. You simply loaned your spouse your strength. You showed kindness. You don't need to remind them of their weakness. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. In other words, love does not dishonor others, ever. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. It never fails. If we loved like this, what marriage problem would that not resolve? If we supernaturally love like that, things would be fixed. What relationship with difficult children would not at least create a crack in their hearts or minds to eventually give in and for them to listen? What would love like this not fix? It's not that it's the patience, the kindness, the the not dishonoring or the not self-seeking qualities in and of themselves. It's these as an expression of God's love for us so that we get to love like that too. Paul is saying to these Corinthian believers, in case you're wondering what love looks like, this is it. And if you're still not sure, the Holy Spirit will always nudge you toward kindness, goodness, faithfulness. You remember this list? Gentleness, self-control. This is why Paul tells us we're to walk by the Spirit, not according to the flesh, because the Spirit will lead us to love like God loves us. The Spirit will lead us to ask, what does love require of me? You can be a part of a great awakening, the next great awakening of the American church. We can be a part of that as we learn to love others well, as we learn to love others with supernatural love. Let me ask you something this morning. Do you think we'd have this conversation today if I didn't think the people of Connection Point were capable of displaying this kind of supernatural love that's commanded by Jesus? and instructed by Paul? I can tell you, I wouldn't. I mean, why would we talk about things that are not possible to achieve? That only leads to frustration. I share this message this morning because I firmly believe this church can express love like this. It just takes us all being committed to do it. I firmly believe God wants Connection Point to be a part of the next great awakening. But for that to happen, we've got to learn to love well. And what is required for us to learn to love well? The short answer is relationships. The way we learn to love is by spending time with others. And let's face it, it's difficult to spend time on a Sunday morning like this. You're not diving deep in relationship here. Where do relationships happen? They happen in connect groups. They happen in 
and volunteer teams. They happen in mentoring groups. That's why we want to encourage you. We're glad you're here on Sunday, but we want you in smaller settings because for us to learn to love well, we've got to be in relationships with others. Not the superficial kind, but the deep, authentic, genuine kind. In other words, for you to be a part of the next great awakening, you've got to put yourself in environments where you can learn to love in supernatural ways. So the way we like to encourage you to do that today is by signing up for a connect group. Connect groups are a great way for you to interact with others, to learn to love others. Many times people not like yourself. In fact, I'd encourage you, seek out those in your connect group that maybe are not like you and develop friendships with them because that's how we learn to love in supernatural ways. It's easy to love those that love us. It's a lot more work to love those that maybe are different from us or, or maybe are even difficult people in our lives. But if you and I want to learn how to love well, those are the kind of relationships we've got to work on. And let me tell you this morning, I don't love like this yet, but I want to. And I'm committed to working on it. The question is, will you work on it today? And will you work on it by being in relationships with others? I pray that you will.